Good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. A little later start today than normal, but if you're joining us live on YouTube, thanks for joining us. If you're catching us on one of the traditional platforms, Buzzsprout or YouTube again, when these things, we get posted back up after a little bit of time. Thanks for joining us. It's interesting time of year. We we had the Masters. We're certainly going to talk about the historic win for Hideki Matsuyama. We're going to talk about baseball because now we're a couple weeks in. in frustration if you're a Mets fan already mounting. I, I got you. Don't worry. We'll have a little group therapy and work through that. There's only a couple weeks left for the NFL draft, which is an event that I really enjoy. And if you're a Bills fan, this draft to me is a draft that's different than one that you've had in probably 20 years since the mid nineties. There hasn't been a draft like this for the Buffalo Bills. We'll talk about that. going to give you an update on Syracuse university basketball. You know, the roster turnover is ongoing with the transfer portal and, you know, the NBA draft looming for Alan Griffin. We'll discuss that as well. But I want to start with baseball and not on the field yet. We'll get to some on the field stuff. I want to talk about something that's very dear to my heart and, in my opinion, is a terrible thing for the game of baseball, and it's replay. Replay is now in every sport. We have it in hockey where if a guy's offsides, the play is in the offensive zone for another minute or two, they could go back and look at it if a guy was an inch offsides. Even though it has nothing to do with the subsequent play, we're going to go back and look at it. And it's basketball the last two minutes. You could challenge a foul call here and there. There's more replay in sports now than ever. And to me, replay has become part of sports because jackass sportscasters or podcasters or radio hosts, they want a perfect game. One of my most hated sports announcers is is the jackass on ESPN, Mike Greenberg. He is just such a typical media guy and wants perfection and, and wants more replay and, and all the time. And when you listen to him, I haven't listened to him in a couple of years, frankly, but when he was on with Mike Golick, who I really enjoyed, he would constantly talk about how the need for more replay. And, and to me, what people who have never refereed a game or never umpired a game don't understand is that replay makes officials worse. Because you see it all the time. Guys either make calls or don't make calls. Knowing replay is going to either bail them out or back them up. And I think that's a terrible way to officiate a game. But it's become commonplace. We see it all the time where guys, especially in the NCAA tournament, you saw it constantly, they'll go to the monitor. We can go to the monitor. It makes guys less aggressive and less assured with their whistles or their calls. And to me, that's a horrible way to officiate. Baseball replay is different than all others. Uh, umpiring in a baseball game is different than most 
every other sport. Because in every other sport, you're watching the game, and if something happens, back to it. In baseball, you know where you need to make a call. Grounder to shortstop, the runners go into first. You know there's only one play, the play of first base. That's where you have to look. Major League Baseball umpires, for the most part, are really good. If you watch games all the time, you see bang-bang plays that they get right constantly. And it's incredibly difficult. When Abner Doubleday created baseball and you had 90 feet between bases, it turned out to be the exact amount to create a lot of excitement in plays at first base. And we see guys make the right call, make the wrong call. You're going to have misses with the human element. And if Angel Hernandez is in the game, you're going to have a lot of misses. Replay won't help Angel Hernandez enough that he will not suck anymore. Getting better umpires and referees helps getting the calls right better. That's the solution, not getting more replay. The other night, there was a Phillies-Braves game, and these two teams are two of the better teams in the National League, in my opinion, and two teams that, in my opinion, will likely be playoff teams when we get to October. Really good game. Ronald Acuna Jr. put on a show, and he's a stud. If you haven't watched him play or don't like him, you don't like baseball because this guy is must-see TV. Top five player in the game, in my opinion, already. But if you saw this play live, I could see why an umpire misses it. Even though he's right on top of the play, it has a great look at it. I'm going to show you the play that replay upheld as safe. Watch this play. Didi pops that one into the opposite field. Ozuna's got it. Bohm's going to try it. Here he comes, and he's safe at the plate. Wow. On a shallow fly ball into left field. They roll the dice with Ozuna's arm, and Bohm is able to score on a bang-bang play at the plate. Shallow left field. The throw. Wow. Oh, I don't know. Man, it's close. It might have looked like Bohm's foot came up. We'll get some definitive looks at it here. Oh, boy. Does the toe just grab a little bit of the plate? Now, when you first saw the play, a couple things. Marcelo Zuna properly gets behind the ball, gets a running start, Still throws a three-hopper to home play. Former Mets scrub Travis Darnell, who's now all of a sudden good, makes a good tag, catches the ball, gets in front of the play after getting the ball, legal play there. Alec Baum, who's a great young ball player for the Phillies, slides. In fast motion, it looks like his foot gets in before the tag gets put on Thus, the safe call. Go to replay, and you see clearly that Baum's 
foot never touches the play. Never touches the play. Yet replay upholds the call. How is this possible? Now, it was five minutes, by the way, that MLB took to look at the replays. Five minutes of a stoppage of a game. Now, what do you hear from baseball people who are looking to grow the game? We've got to speed the game up. We've got to, we've got to get that two-and-a-half-hour game back. That's why there's a pitch clock in minor league baseball. That's why you're trying to keep guys in the batter's box. All these things to speed up the game. Yet we're, making, we're taking five minutes to look at a play. And it's a big play. It's late in the game in a one-run game, and it ended up being the winning run in that game. But it was a horrible call by replay, not by the, the, the home plate umpire who missed it originally. I can excuse that. I can excuse fast motion, everything going on, missing a call. It's not good. You don't ever want to miss a call. But you understand because the game happens so fast and with the human eye, you're, you're only able to do so much. But when you slow it down, look at it for five minutes and still don't get it right, what the hell are we doing? Why is that part of the game? Honestly, it's done a couple things to me that have taken away from the game. One, it's slowed it down. Two, it's put more of an onus on bad umpire. We, we focus on the replay situation so much that when there is a play that's missed, we look at it over and over and over again while we're waiting for the umpires on the headsets to get the call theoretically overturned and correct by their peers back in New York City. We also then have taken umpiring and just made it a joke because we've taken some of the power out of their hands. You think a guy like Joe West, as arrogant as he is, likes having his calls overturned? You know it pisses him off, and you know it creates, because it's his fellow umpires. Remember, Major League Baseball has a rotation. The guys in New York doing the review are fellow umpires. They're not part of Major League Baseball. They're umpires. So we work together one day, and next day I'm turning your calls over. It's not something that I'm sure goes over all that well within the umpiring ranks. It does a lot of things to hurt the game, mostly slow it down and put more focus on the umpire, in my opinion. But it also, there's an element of baseball. Baseball stops when a call is made. When a call is made, the game stops. You hit a line drive down the right field line, if it's a foul ball, the game stops. Well, now you rule that ball is fair, and you've got, by replay, and you've got to figure out where to put guys. If you want to use replay in baseball for home runs because the way stadiums are made, it's not as clear if it's a home run because of different fan involvement and things. You want to use it for home runs? Fine. And it should be a 30-second limit, literally 30 seconds. And there's no need to get the headset on. Zero need. We want to replay it. Hope Light Umpire does one of these. New York looks at it. 30 seconds later, you could put in an announcement, that's a home run. It, it, there's no need to go over and get on the headsets and talk. Here's the other thing. In football, when 
there's a replay. The referee gets on the microphone and explains to the television audience and to the live crowd, assuming there is one and it's not 2020, the play was overturned or the play was upheld. You get a little bit of interaction. You get nothing for Major League Baseball. The Mets had a game last week where they actually won a game. It's, I know, surprising. But the bases are loaded, one out in the ninth inning. Michael Conforto at the dish. The pitch comes in, and it's a strike. Conforto puts his elbow out and gets hit by the pitch, barely. And Major League Baseball's replay system allows for replay to check whether or not he did get hit. But it doesn't allow them to correct the call that if you get hit by a pitch and the pitch is a strike, it's a strike. There's not a hit by pitch. It cost the Marlins a game. Replay couldn't correct it. Now, it's bad umpiring to award the hit by pitch. But at the same time, if there's no replay involved, the umpire at home plate who makes the decision could get help from his counterparts. They can have a conference and overturn it on the field. They absolutely can. And frankly, in that decision, in that situation, the home plate umpire who was about to call a strike, if you watch the replay of that, would have probably told his guys, hey, I blew it. Let's overturn it. But he can't do that with the replay system in place. Replay has hurt sports officiating far more than it will ever help it. And there's never going to be a perfect game. And here's the other thing. We talk, when you talk about officiating, everyone wants it to be black and white. Everyone wants it to be inbounds, out of bounds. Not every call is inbounds, out of bounds. Inbounds, out of bounds is a black and white situation. You either are inbounds or you're out of bounds. However, when you get into the intricacies of officiating, you're looking at the gray area. You're looking at advantage, disadvantage. You're looking at whether or not it had an effect on the play. Use a, a football example for that. You run a sweep to the left side. The tailback is 10 yards down the field when the right tackle, who is engaged with the left defensive end, he holds him. You're 40 yards away from the play. You're going to call that hold? Never. Never should that hold be called. But if you get into replay, you can't use judgment. You have to go by facts. And every official who's ascended to these high levels has gotten there because of their ability to apply judgment to plays. But we don't allow that when we bring in replay. It either is or it isn't, and it's worse for the game. The best officiated games are games where guys use their judgment, apply that properly, and move on. Replay ruins that. Now, in the NFL, you can use replay quickly and efficiently and correctly by having a sky judge in the booth. You eliminate challenges. You have a guy up there looking at plays. He could call penalties that are needed. He could fix things like what happened with the Rams and Saints in the playoffs a couple years ago. And it could be part of the crew. And that's a better way of doing it. That's how replay should be done in football if you're going to have it. 
but the NFL has been resistant to do so. Replay in football should be done by a sky judge, if you're going to have it. Replay in baseball should be for home runs only. If you want to do fair and foul, I guess I could go with that, because, again, it's black and white. Beyond that, no. Get rid of replay in baseball. Replay in basketball should simply be for clock situations. That's it. It shouldn't be for inbounds, out-of-bounds either. Because here's what happens in that situation. We see plays get overturned, happened in the NCAA tournament last year, a couple years ago, where there was an out-of-bounds call. And everyone was on board with the call made on the floor. But replay showed that it was a different call. With replay, you're showing up at a fire sometimes with a can of gas. You create things like the tuck rule. Famous Raiders, Patriots play. If there's no replay, there is no tuck rule. Not one person was looking at that play to be overturned. But replay did it. They broke into jail with that. Created controversy because of replay. Get rid of it, especially in baseball. Fix it in football with the Sky Judge. That's how you fix it. I had Mike Pereira on my radio show a couple times, and Mike Pereira is a a great, great source for officiating knowledge. He is all in on replay as far as the Sky Judge goes. But beyond that, no. No. Doesn't want it. It, Des Bryant's catch in the Packers-Cowboys game a couple years ago. It was a catch. The ball may have moved a little bit, but next time you look at that replay, show me where there's definitive proof that the ball hit the ground. Because Dez's arm was underneath that ball. His arm hit the ground, but it doesn't show the ball hitting the ground. Also, when you take three steps and lunge for the goal line, that's a football move. That should show control. One of the worst uses of replay of all time was when Des Bryant caught the ball and they ruled that he didn't. Replay has ruined far more games than it's fixed. Get rid of it. This is the latest example. We're two weeks into the baseball season, and twice in the last week, the Conforto play at home plate, the Alec Baum play at home plate, twice we've seen games decided because replay can't help them out. Okay feel better now i'm into it the boston red sox are off to a surprising start look i thought the Sox this year would probably lose 90 games they're six and three they lost the first three games of the season have won six in a row rafael devers has four home runs jd martinez has been a monster five home runs seven doubles already this year they've been really good the yankees got a nice win last night to even their record at five and five garrett cole this is what I like about an ace. Garrett Cole last night didn't have it early on. Threw a lot of pitches, gave up a run in a game that you knew was going to be a low-scoring game. But Garrett Cole corrected things and fixed things. And this is why he's a true ace. Because after a shaky first couple innings, their first inning, I should say, he retired the last 15 batters he faced. He only threw six innings because of a high pitch count, because of that first inning. But a guy 
who is able to self-correct on the mound is a true ace, and Garrett Cole is that. Yankees and Jays playing down in Dunedin, Florida, Florida, and I can't wait till mid-May or so when the Bisons move out of Buffalo to allow the Jays to play there again this summer. I'm hopeful New York State allows some fans to go because, frankly, Yankees, Jays, and you get to drive here to Buffalo or if you're from Buffalo to go to the game, it's just such a treat, and I, I really look forward to that this summer. Angels are off to a good start. How about that? We might finally get to see Mike Trout in the playoffs. I know it's way too early to think about that, but the best player in baseball over the last several years has never played in a playoff game. And you want to make playoffs better? Get Mike Trout in the playoffs, and we will be able to see that. The Mets are off to a typical Mets start. They're, they made a decision to start a game the other day that got rained out. They've now had five games canceled. They've played five games, but they've had five games canceled already this year. And, and one of the games that they lost was Saturday afternoon. Jake DeGrom was typical Jake DeGrom. Gave up a run over eight innings, struck out 14 in the game, didn't walk anybody, gave up three hits. One of those hits was a, was a home run, and DeGrom lost. How about these Jake DeGrom stats? In the last four years, DeGrom has made 78 starts. His record is 25-20. and 20. In the 25 wins, his ERA is 1.11. In the 20 losses, his ERA is 3.80. In the 33 no decisions that Jake DeGrom has had, his ERA is 1.76. The Mets in DeGrom's 78 starts are 36 and 42. Six games under 500. This guy's the best pitcher in baseball, and I really don't think there's a debate. As much as I like Garrett Cole, DeGrom is, is a better pitcher and has been for the last four years. And yet the Mets cannot get out of their own way. It is truly mind-boggling how this man continues to dominate and his team continues to waste his starts. It is absolutely a criminal act by his teammates to not support him. Here's another DeGrom stat. Two games so far this year, the Mets' three-hole hitter has three hits. That's Michael Conforto. DeGrom, he's got three hits in his two starts. It's just just ridiculous. Out in the West in the NL, the Dodgers and Padres are rolling. I think this is going to be one of those fun summers where two of the better teams in baseball in the same division battling back and forth. Both have had some injuries, Clay Bellinger, Fernando Tatis Jr., both on the I.L., but the, these two teams are going to be there for a long time. Joe Musgrove throws the first no-hitter in Padres history. That was pretty cool. The interview after was pretty cool. Hearing that this guy grew up in the San Diego area, was a season ticket holder, his family was, for the Padres games. Where's number 44 for the Padres, who he got traded to this offseason because of uh, – his hero at the time was Jake Peavy, who was a damn good pitcher for the Padres for a long time. 
pretty cool. And one other really cool thing I wanted to mention about baseball was the Cincinnati Reds. That's a fun team. They are cocky. They're ripping the cover off it. Tyler Nyquin has five home runs. Nick Castellanos has four. They are definitely a team to keep an eye on going forward. I don't know that they'll, they're good enough to make noise in the playoffs, but in a division where it doesn't seem there's a clear-cut favorite, the Reds would be a fun team to get in the playoffs with that young, quality lineup. I think they'd be a tough out. The NFL draft, as I mentioned, a couple weeks away, and I want to transition to that. Here's the thing about the draft. We know the top three picks. Well, we don't know the top three picks, but we know the positions that are going. Trevor Lawrence is going to the Jags, number one. Zach Wilson going to the Jets, number two. Here's what's going to annoy me about draft night. Those two picks, you have 10 minutes for each team. Take 20 minutes. It should take two minutes. When Goodell gets up there and announces that the draft is available, the Jags should hand the card in. Goodell shouldn't leave the podium. The first pick is going to be Trevor Lawrence. We don't need to spend eight minutes showing Shad Khan and trying to find Jaguar highlights over the last five years. Have there been has there been a Jag highlight? I mean, you're gonna show Doug Marone, St. Doug, trying to get things Doug, no. Just hand the card in and go. Then the Jets are on the clock. No need to talk about Sam Darnold getting traded. Hand the clock, hand the card in, Zach Wilson. And then you go to three at San Francisco. Now, the 49ers are going to pick a quarterback. Don't know if it's going to be Trey Lance. Mac Jones has been rumored there. Maybe even Justin Fields, who's got another pro day coming up this week. Look, the draft to me starts at number four. You're going to have three quarterbacks taken in the top three. Atlanta's at number four. Atlanta needs defense badly. They could use an offensive lineman. And there are, this is a very good draft for offensive linemen, especially at the tackle position. But Kyle Pitts is a generational talent at number four. If he goes there, he's a tight end out of Florida and could be the best tight end in football. Now, tight end isn't traditionally a position that's taken this high, but the fact that many people are considering what it would be like to have Julio Jones, Calvin Ridley, and and Kyle Pitts go out there with Matt Ryan, that's a lethal combination. And you can't double anybody if you put those three game breakers on the field at the same time. Matt Ryan would put up, in my opinion, even bigger numbers than he already does. He's got a couple years left on his deal. I know there's a lot of talk that maybe the Falcons draft a quarterback, move on from Matt Ryan after this year. I don't know that that's the smart way to go, but the draft to me starts at number four. Here locally, we're going to pay a ton of attention to what the Buffalo Bills do. And, And if you read, I think there's a lot of very good Bills coverage in this area. Many of the people that most of us follow on Twitter, who are Bills beat reporters, are talking about the possibility of the Bills taking a running back at number 30, whether it be Najee Harris from Alabama, Travis Etienne from Clemson, or maybe even Javante Williams, the kid from North Carolina. Frankly, I'm of the trade out of the 30th position, and that is 
a possibility. There are teams that are going to, and especially if a quarterback falls, the best thing that could happen to the Bills is one of these five quarterbacks that I just mentioned slides down the draft board. Because if you remember Lamar Jackson a couple years ago, Lamar had slid down, and Baltimore traded back up into the first round to draft him. Because when you take a quarterback, especially one like Lamar, who was a phenomenal athlete but thought to be a bit of a project, as it turns out, he wasn't that much of a project at all. But that was the common thought about Lamar Jackson coming into the draft is how do you set up a system to utilize his athletic talents while trying to develop his throwing ability. The funny thing is, with with the way things are set up, if you're a first-round pick, you get a four-year contract with a fifth-year option. When you're talking about a quarterback and developing that quarterback, that extra year of control is a huge, huge thing. Because the other part of it is, the salaries for quarterbacks, obviously, as we see now, 35 to $40 million for a franchise quarterback. Having a fifth year knowing what your cost is going to be is a big deal. So if you're at the end of the first round, and the Bills certainly are at number 30, a team who wants a quarterback but projects that quarterback to be a bit of a project – Maybe you could get somebody to trade back up. And, and there are a couple teams that I think could do that if the right player falls. And again, I say player, not quarterback, because generally I think it's going to be a quarterback that somebody would want to trade back up for. But you never know. There may be a pass rusher that's there. There may be a, a tackle that's there that somebody wants to come up and get. And I've identified two teams that I think the Bills could do business with in trading down. And to me, if I trade out of 30, I want a second-round pick that's in the first 10 picks of the second round. I also want a third-round pick and maybe something else to trade out of the first round. And I've de- there are two teams that I think make sense. One of them is the Philadelphia Eagles. Jalen Hurts will be their quarterback. I don't know how all in they are on Jalen Hurts, but if a guy like Trey Lance or Mac Jones slides, it may be too good for Howie Roseman to pass up. He's been known to to spend on quarterbacks, regardless of whether or not you already have a franchise quarterback in-house. Here's what I see as a fair deal. Uh, Second-round pick, a third-round pick, and Zach Ertz, for the Bills' 30th overall pick. I think that would be a very good move, and Philly has multiple picks in the second round, so they could do that without really spending overspending for that to happen. The other team that, would have, that could potentially make this move, and I don't know that the Bills would do business with the Dolphins, but the Dolphins have a plethora of draft picks. And if there is a guy... And, and we may be looking at running back if if Najee Harris is still there, or maybe there hasn't been a running back taken yet. The Dolphins, with their first two picks, end up going wide receiver and offensive lineman. Maybe now you, you go running back with a third first round pick 
and kind of cement that offense around Tua. And there you would get, again, a second and a third to move down just a little bit. And the Dolphins certainly could do that because they have multiple picks in the second. They have multiple picks, obviously, as I mentioned, in the first. And they do have their own third-round pick. So that could be interesting. And, again, I'm not sure that if you're Brandon Bean, you want to do business with the Dolphins. But I think that moving back and getting more picks in the second and third round is the best approach to what the Bills should do. Because if you look at the Bills, what is their need? What is What should their focus be on the draft? And to me, it's the same as it always should be, best available player. Although now, for the Bills, the best available player can play pretty much any position. You set a quarterback you're bringing back your offensive line, but you could use depth there. You've got two third-round running backs that are young, but you could use another player there potentially. Wide receiver position, you always need depth. They certainly could use a tight end. Defensive side of the ball, there's definitely a need on the defensive line and linebacker for depth and improvement. You need a cornerback still that you're confident in opposite Tredavious White, and I don't think they are fully confident in Levi Wallace. Maybe Dane Jackson, the the rookie seventh rounder last year, maybe he gets to show some things. But if you think about it, the biggest need to me is in the front seven defensively. But this year, the Bills will have a chance to improve that front seven with Starla Tulele coming back. That should free up Ed Oliver, and Ed Oliver is now in his third year, so you expect him to take that step that he was drafted and become the player to become the player he was drafted to be. He hasn't yet done that, but if you put Star Latulale next to him, there's a good chance that Ed Oliver takes a big step forward. At the edge rusher position, you've got A.J. Epinenza, last year's second-round pick, who developed and got better as the year went along. So if you think about improvement, Oliver, Epidenza improved because of their time in the game. Starlo Tulele coming back, there's your improvement on the defensive line. So the Bills have an option to either stay at 30 and take the best available player or trade down and take multiple second and third round picks to add depth to the roster to me, the latter is preferable. We'll see what Brandon Bean does. And we've got, obviously, another week or so, a couple of weeks to, to talk about this and, and get ready for that draft. Very much, very much a fan of the draft and the process. You know, the, the Jets, it's funny. I keep thinking about this because with Sam Darnold now going to Carolina, the Jets are all in on Zach Wilson. They've got Mekhi Becton at tackle. That should help them out. But with their additional draft capital, they've got two number ones this year, two number twos. They should be able to add to that offensive line, add to the wide receiver position. And hopefully Zach Wilson has a much better chance of succeeding than Sam Darnold did. But – I want to focus on Sam for a minute because here's a quarterback who I don't think has improved since he was at USC, 
But now he goes to Carolina and he's working with Matt Rule. Matt Rule last year, his first year in the NFL, took Teddy Bridgewater in and made him his starter. And that Carolina team, even though they didn't have their best offensive player, Christian McCaffrey, for most of the year, was a tough out most weeks. I think Matt Rule's going to be a very good coach. I think he's going about things the right way. He did something this week, this past week, that I always like when guys do this. Jimmy Johnson, the former Cowboy coach, now Fox TV analyst, lives down in the Florida Keys. And, and Jimmy's big passion, other than football, is fishing. And he goes out on his boat quite often and, and fishes. And he'll invite people down to go out and, and spend the day talking football and fishing. And he recently did that with Matt Rule. And I, I like when a young coach, and, and Matt Rule's not a young coach, but he's new to the NFL, one year in, wants to hear from a veteran guy wants to hear what it's like and why what did you think how did you do it and i really think with sam darnold going there mccaffrey coming back carolina in good draft position to put some pieces around sam i look for a much different sam darnold in carolina and i think matt rule is going to be a big part of that puzzle with Sam Darnold because there is ability there. There's certainly ability. It's just creating better opportunities and, and eliminating the bad plays. And no, You'll never eliminate all the bad plays, but if you can get rid of most of them, you'll be a much better quarterback. I, I really think that Sam Darnold is a guy to keep an eye on next year in part because of the situation he's now in. I expect the Jets to look a lot a, a lot like what they've looked like in the last couple of years with a rookie quarterback who hopefully becomes the answer for that franchise. But I think Sam Darnold's going to look much different in Carolina Blue than he did with the Jets. So keep an eye on that. The Sabres made a trade before the trade deadline. They traded Taylor Hall, who was a disastrous signing for some reason. The guy had two goals this year Taylor Hall's a damn good hockey player had a no trade clause in his deal which basically handcuffed Kevin Adams into dealing him to the Boston Bruins reports are that Hall really wanted to play for the Bruins and that's why he ended up there forcing Kevin Adams to take the deal that was in front of him the deal of course the Sabres get back a player that the Bruins wanted to get rid of and a second round pick and a draft that nobody thinks is a very good draft. They give up a good young player in Curtis Lazar as well as Taylor Hall. But the part that got me is the Sabres are going to pay a good portion of Taylor Hall's remaining salary. So the question I have for Kevin Adams is not why did you get so little in return for a player that's now going to be an integral part of a very good team Stanley Cup run. That, that's not the question. I understand the limited return. What I don't understand is why you make the deal in the first place. If you've got an asset that you're going to get pennies on the dollar back for, your team is suddenly playing better hockey. 
the young players are starting to get an opportunity. You're seeing a better effort. You're seeing guys like Rasmus Dahlin go from one of the worst players in the league to all of a sudden looking like the guy who was the number one overall draft pick a few years ago. You're seeing improvement. You're seeing a situation where the the culture is changing. The belief system is changing. As opposed to, you know, under Ralph Kruger, when we're going to lose tonight, so why try? Under Granado, you, you're seeing a situation where players are starting to believe things and starting to get their opportunity and play better. Well, why trade a guy who's A, a good player, B, a solid veteran leader, who can help these young guys develop and build the culture that you're going to build when all you're getting back is pennies on the dollar anyway? It doesn't make sense to me. It's when you're trading from a position of weakness, and that's what the Sabres were, you're not going to win the trade. In this case, I thought they lost the trade overwhelmingly. They've got a rental of a player that they want to, that's good, they're going to move on from this year, and they got a second round pick. They also lost a player in Lazar, in my opinion, who could have been a player, not, not a top line guy, but a player who's around the organization for another four or five years and a solid contributor. And, and it's costing the Sabres money to do so. I don't understand. I, I thought that Kevin Adams, and again, he, he's up against it. He, he's got very little chance of succeeding. But I thought he lost an opportunity to show the rest of the league I'm not going to be some patsy who just gives a guy away because the guy wants to go. I, I thought, you know, in his first trade deadline, he had an opportunity to establish himself as somebody who looks at the big picture. And I don't think he did that because, again, keep Taylor Hall, keep him on the ice with these younger players that you're now working in. All of a sudden, the culture seems a little different. The energy seems a little different. And you've got a seasoned veteran to help develop these young players. I I thought it was a missed opportunity. I understand why he did it. And and everyone's going to look at, well, he got a second-round pick out of it. Great. The, second, the draft hasn't been kind to the Buffalo Sabres. They've had a lot of high draft picks. And other than Jack Eichel and Sam Reinhart, not many of them have come even close to what we thought they were going to be. Maybe Rasmus Dahlin continues to turn his career around and he does become the defenseman that he was drafted to be. But, I, again, I just think you're dealing from a point of weakness. you got a very poor return on your trade the organization missed an opportunity to keep a player who could have helped this culture turnaround continue to be a culture turnaround and and impart wisdom on some of the young players who are getting their first opportunity in the nhl so again I'm, i'm piling on the sabers and i know saber fans are probably sick of hearing it but i just thought again This is a rookie GM making a rookie mistake, my opinion. Syracuse University basketball is dealing with the transfer portal like many other, pretty much every other NCAA Division I team. So far, six players are leaving. 
Kadari Richmond's going to Seton Hall. Robert Braswell is leaving. Marek Dolajai is going to play pro ball in Europe. Woody Newton and John Ball and Jock are in the transfer portal. They'll end up somewhere. And we found out this week that Alan Griffin is in the transfer portal. Well, no, actually, he's not. He's in the NBA draft, and he's signed with an agent. Wait, what? Look, I like Alan Griffin. I like his skill set. He can shoot it. He's athletic. He can't play a lick of defense. His shooting is very streaky. His shot selection is horrible. I'm all for guys going pro if they're going to get drafted. Quincy Guerrier is an interesting situation. He has a chance, much like O'Shea Brissett a couple of years ago, by going to the NBA draft of getting drafted in the second round because the team will look at him and think, we could develop this kid, bring him into the G League, develop him, and, and he can help us out maybe not this year, but maybe next year. And Quincy would get paid then. And to me, if you have a chance to get paid and you're going to go into the draft, then do it. Go to the draft. If you're going to get drafted, where you don't go to the NBA draft is if you're likely not to get drafted. That, that's what Alan Griffin is doing. Whoever is advising this kid has given him bad advice. Now, can he end up in the G League? Maybe. And maybe being a free agent and choosing your team or somebody who thinks you have a chance to develop is a better situation than getting drafted anyway. But there's no money there if you're not drafted. You will get paid, but not like an NBA draftee. I just I don't understand that decision. But nonetheless, that means six players are out for Syracuse. What's it look like next year? Well, the backcourt is going to be together again. Joe Girard III and Buddy Beheim will both be back. You're going to add to that a transfer, a uh, local kid, actually, Samir Torrance, who played the last couple years at Marquette. So the guard position is going to be very similar to this year. Samir Torrance taking on the role of Kadari Richmond as that third guard. I think that'll be pretty good. The middle, Brahma Sidibe has announced he's coming back. He and Jesse Edwards will form a two-headed monster. And if Sidibe's healthy, the defense in the middle of the 2-3 will be better because of the length of Sidibe and Edwards combined in the middle. That leaves the forward position. I have to believe one of those spots will be taken by Benny Williams. Benny Williams is a five-star recruit, one of the best recruits Syracuse has had in the last dozen or so years. He will be one of the starting forwards, in my opinion. If Quincy Garrier comes back, he likely is the other. Cole Swider, who comes over from Villanova, has a chance to contribute there as well. Basically, I look at next year's team as a similar version of this year's team, maybe with a little upside. you got to figure Buddy Beheim is going to continue to grow his game and continue to improve. Hopefully Joe Girard gets his game back on track, has a little better success. Again, with Samir Torrance coming off the bench, good enough guard play. The center position will be better next year than it was this year. Benny Williams is certainly going to be better than Alan Griffin or Robert Braswell, so you have some improvement 
there. And if Gurrier comes back with Slider coming off the bench, then you've got some depth at the forward position, and and that's usable depth. And Gurrier, if he comes back, should be approved as well. The other thing that happened this past week is Syracuse landed another five-star recruit, not for this upcoming season, for the following season, in Kamari Lance. So after going years without landing a top 30 player, it looks like Syracuse is going to go back-to-back years with landing such a player, Benny Williams this year and Kamari Lance next year. Jim Beheim's recruiting team, he closes the deal, certainly. But I think Jerry McNamara is really starting to, to show that he is a key member of this coaching staff when it comes to recruiting. I think McNamara is now becoming what Mike Hopkins was to recruiting when he was there. Hopkins was the guy who was bringing in the best talent because he was establishing relationships and and continuing on. That's why Hopkins has continued to recruit so well at Washington, even though he hasn't been able to, to coach winners up there. He's bringing great talent into the program. Jerry McNamara now has taken that role, and it looks as though Syracuse may be in good shape going forward because of that. So interesting that you lose six players off of your team and next year may actually look better than this year did. Hopefully there will be improvement from the players within the program. And and again, Benny Williams is going to be the big hope. Syracuse hasn't had a player like that join this program in a long, long time. Lastly today, I want to hit on the Masters. And, you know, to me, this is the best golf tournament there is to watch. We know every hole. We know every shot. It's what it is. Jim Dance, a tradition like any, unlike any other. And this year, many people were disappointed, I think, because of the players that were at the top. I mean, you had Hideki Matsuyama win the tournament, which – we don't realize how big of a win that was for Japan. Japan's a golf-crazy country anyway. And for one of their own to win this tournament, this in the U.S. Open are the most prestigious golf tournaments in the world, for Hideki Matsuyama to bring that green jacket back to Japan, it, it's just such an enormous win for that country. And the people of that country, I'm sure will be celebrating this victory. We we don't realize what this win meant to that nation. We look at it as like, oh, okay, Japan, a Japanese guy won the tournament. This is such a huge win for the people of Japan and, and for Hideki Matsuyama, a guy who has been a great player for a long time. Now he gets a major. Where does his career go from here? This guy can hit it long he's a very good player looks to be a guy who's very well received within the ropes as well I'm, i'm intrigued to see how well his career takes off after this because i i think he was a guy on the cusp if you say you know best players never to have won a major he certainly was one of those players in that discussion 
Will Zalatoris comes in second. I had never heard of Will Zalatoris before this week. But this young man has a boatload of talent. Again, the casual golf fan isn't going to care about Will Zalatoris until he becomes a multiple winner. Jordan Spieth was in the mix, but not really. Xander Shoffley, who, again, I don't think the casual golf fan realizes how good he is, had a chance until the 16th hole, an absolute disastrous tee shot. I thought a club short on that hole, an aggressive line. He had come off four birdies in a row, was feeling really good, went at the hole on 16 instead of above it to, to play for that roll down to the hole. And again, club short, makes a triple bogey there, ends his Masters run. It may not have been the Masters you wanted because Rory and DJ didn't make the cut. Brandon or Bryson DeChambeau, thankfully, I cannot stand the young man. Bryson DeChambeau was out of it the entire time. So you've got top names, not part of the mix. But to me, watching a guy like Will Zalatoris answer every call, having Xander Shoffley make four birdies in a row and go to 16, one down with a chance. He's all of a sudden got a chance because Matsuyama hit it long on 15 and put it in the water. So, you know, there was drama. There was the Masters drama that you would expect on a Sunday. It just wasn't the names that maybe we wanted it to be. So while many people will think this Masters tournament was boring, it wasn't boring. It just wasn't the players you hoped it would be. It was players who were still out there doing great things. And again, we, we, we saw Hideki Matsuyama take that next step and become a Masters champion. We saw a guy who's not even a full member of the PGA Tour and Will Zalatoris just continue to battle through and be a guy who's there on Sunday. And frankly, was second by one because Matsuyama bogeyed 18. It was never really in doubt. He had a three-inch putt to win the tournament, so it didn't really mean much. But I thought the drama was there. I just think that the names many fans wanted weren't there. And I think that's why many people thought this was a boring Masters tournament. Well, that's all for this week. Next week, get a little bit more into the draft. We'll see what goes on with that and keep you posted with any other sports news that comes up. Thanks for listening live. And if you're uh, catching us on a replay, thanks for listening that way, too. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.